Welcome back to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to continue the story. Chapter 25 The month of courtship had wasted. Its very last hours were being numbered. There was no putting off the day that advanced, the bridal day, and all preparations for its arrival were complete. I at least had nothing more to do. There were my trunks, packed, locked, corded, ranged in a row along the wall of my little chamber. Tomorrow, at this time, they would be far on their road to London, and so should I, or rather, not I, but one Jane Rochester, a person whom as yet I knew not. The cards of address alone remained to nail on. They lay, four little squares in the drawer. Mr. Rochester had himself written the direction, Mrs. Rochester, and below that the name of our hotel in London on each. I could not persuade myself to affix them, or to have them affixed. <laughs> Mrs. Rochester! She did not exist! She would not be born till tomorrow, sometime after eight o'clock a.m., and I would wait to be assured she had come into the world alive before I assigned to her all that property. It was enough that in yonder closet, opposite my dressing-table, garments said to be hers had already displaced my black stuff lowered frock and straw bonnet, for not to me appertained that suit of wedding raiment, the pearl-colored robe the vapory veil pendant from the usurped portmanteau. I shut the closet to conceal the strange, wraith-like apparel it contained, which at this evening hour, nine o'clock, gave out certainly a most ghostly shimmer through the shadow of my apartment. I will leave you by yourself, white dream, I said. I am feverish. I hear the wind blowing. I will go out of doors and feel it. It was not only the hurry of preparation that made me feverish, not only the anticipation of the great change, the new life which was to commence tomorrow. Both these circumstances had their share, doubtless, in producing that restless, excited mood which hurried me forth at this late hour into the darkening grounds. But a third cause influenced my mind more than they. I had at heart a strange and anxious thought. Something had happened which I could not comprehend, no one knew of or had seen the event but myself. It had taken place the preceding night. Mr. Rochester that night was absent from home, nor was he yet returned. Business had called him to a small estate of two or three farms he possessed thirty miles off. Business it was requisite he should settle in person, previous to his meditated departure from England. I waited now his return, eager to disburden my mind, and to seek of him the solution of the enigma that perplexed me. Stay till he comes, reader, and when I disclose my secret to him, you shall share the confidence. I sought the orchard driven to its shelter by the wind, which all day had blown strong and full from the south, without, however, bringing a speck of rain. Instead of subsiding as night drew on, it seemed to augment its rush and deepen its roar. 
The trees blew steadfastly one way, never writhing round, and scarcely tossing back their boughs once in an hour. So continuous was the strain bending their branchy heads northward. The clouds drifted from pole to pole, fast following, mass on mass. No glimpse of blue sky had been visible that July day. It was not without a certain wild pleasure I ran before the wind, delivering my trouble of mind to the measureless air torrent thundering through space. Descending the laurel walk, I faced the wreck of the chestnut tree. It stood up, black and driven. The trunk split down the center, gasped, ghastly. The cloven halves were not broken from each other, for the firm base and strong roots kept them unsundered below, though community of vitality was destroyed. The sap could flow no more. Their great boughs on each side were dead, and next winter's tempest would be sure to fell one or both to earth. As yet, however, they might be said to form one tree. A ruin, but an entire ruin. You did right to hold fast to each other, I said, as if the monster splinters were living things and could hear me. I think, scathed as you look, and charred and scorched, there must be a little sense of life in you yet. Rising out of that adhesion at the faithful, honest roots, you will never have green leaves more. Never more see birds making nests and singing idols in your boughs. The time of pleasure and love is over with you. But you are not desolate. Each of you has a comrade to sympathize with him in his decay. As I looked up at them, the moon appeared momentarily in that part of the sky which filled their fissure. Her disk was blood-red and half overcast. She seemed to throw on me one bewildered, dreary glance, and buried herself again instantly in the deep drift of cloud. The wind fell for a second round Thornfield, but far away, over wood and water, poured a wild, melancholy wail. It was sad to listen to, and I ran off again. Here and there I strayed through the orchard, gathered up the apples with which the grass round the tree roots was thickly strewn, then I employed myself in dividing the ripe from the unripe. I carried them into the house and put them away in the storeroom. Then I repaired to the library to ascertain whether the fire was lit, for though summer, I knew on such a gloomy evening Mr. Rochester would like to see a cheerful hearth when he came in. Yes, the fire had been kindled some time and burnt well. I placed his armchair by the chimney corner. I wheeled the table near it. I led down the curtain and had the candles brought in, ready for lighting. More restless than ever, when I had completed these arrangements, I could not sit still, nor even remain in the house. A little timepiece in the room and the old clock in the hall simultaneously struck ten. How late it grows, I said. I will run down to the gates. It is moonlight at intervals. I can see a good way on the road. He may be coming now, and to meet him will save some minutes of suspense. The wind roared high in the great trees which embowered the gates, but the road, as far as I could see, 
to the right hand and the left, was all still and solitary, save for the shadows of clouds crossing it at intervals as the moon looked out. It was but a long, pale line, unvaried by one moving speck. A pueril tear dimmed my eye while I looked, a tear of disappointment and impatience. Ashamed of it, I wiped it away. I lingered. The moon shut herself wholly within her chamber and drew close her curtain of dense cloud. The night grew dark. Rain came, driving fast on the gale. Oh, I wish he would come. I wish he would come, I exclaimed, seized with foreboding. I had expected his arrival before tea. Now it was dark. What could keep him? Had an accident happened? The event of last night again recurred to me. I interpreted it as a warning of disaster. I feared my hopes were too bright to be realized, and I had enjoyed so much bliss lately that I imagined my fortune had passed its meridian and must now decline. I cannot return to the house, I thought. I cannot sit by the fireside while he is abroad in inclement weather. Better tire my limbs than strain my heart. I will go forward and meet him. I set out. I walked fast, but not far. Ere I had measured a quarter of a mile, I heard the tramp of hoofs. A horseman came on, full gallop, a dog ran by his side. Away with evil presentiment, it was he. Here he was, mounted on Merour, followed by Pilate. He saw me, for the moon had opened a blue field in the sky, and rode in it watery bright. He took his hat off and waved it round his head. I now ran to meet him. There, he exclaimed as he stretched out his hand and bent from the saddle. You can't do without me, that is evident. Step on my boot toe, give me both hands, mount. I obeyed. Joy made me agile. I sprang up before him. A hearty kissing I got for a welcome, and some boastful triumph, which I swallowed as well as I could. He checked himself in his exultation to demand, But is there anything the matter, Janet, that you come to meet me at such an hour? Is anything wrong? No, but I thought you would never come. I could not bear to wait in the house for you, especially with this rain and wind. Rain and wind, indeed. Yes, you are dripping like a mermaid. Pull my cloak round you. But I think you are feverish, Jane. Both your cheek and hand are burning hot. I ask again, is anything the matter? Nothing now. I am neither afraid nor unhappy. Then you have been both? Rather. But I'll tell you all about it by and by, sir. And I dare say you will only laugh at me for my pains. I'll laugh at you heartily when tomorrow is past. Till then, I dare not. My prize is not certain. This is you, who have been as slippery as an eel this last month, and as thorny as a briar rose. I could not lay a finger anywhere, but I was pricked, and now I seem to have gathered up a stray lamb in my arms. You wandered out of the fold to seek your shepherd, did you, Jane? I wanted you. But don't boast. Here we are at Thornfield. 
Now, let me get down. He landed me on the pavement. As John took his horse, and he followed me into the hall, he told me to make haste and put something dry on, and then returned to him in the library. And he stopped me as I made for the staircase to extort a promise that I would not be long. Nor was I long. In five minutes, I rejoined him. I found him at supper. Take a seat and bear me company, Jane. Please, God, it is the last meal but one you will eat at Thornfield Hall for a long time. I sat down near him, but told him I could not eat. Is it because you have the prospect of a journey before you, Jane? Is it the thoughts of going to London that take away your appetite? I cannot see my prospects clearly tonight, sir, and I, I hardly know what thoughts I have in my head. Everything in life seems unreal. Except me. I am substantial enough. Touch me. You, sir, are the most phantom-like of all. You are a mere dream. He held out his hand, laughing. Is that a dream? said he, placing it close to my eyes. He had a rounded, muscular, and vigorous hand, as well as a long, strong arm. Yes, though I touch it, it is a dream, said I, as I put it down from before my face. Sir, have you finished supper? Yes, Jane. I rang the bell and ordered away the tray. When we were again alone, I stirred the fire and then took a low seat at my master's knee. It is near midnight, I said. Yes, but remember, Jane, you promised to wake with me the night before my wedding. I did, and I will keep my promise. For an hour or two, at least, I have no wish to go to bed. Are all your arrangements complete? All, sir. And on my part, likewise, he returned. I have settled everything, and we shall leave Thornfield tomorrow within half an hour after our return from church. Very well, sir. With what an extraordinary smile you uttered that word. Very well, Jane. What a bright spot of color you have on each cheek. And how strangely your eyes glitter. Are you well? I believe I am. Believe? What is the matter? Tell me what you feel. I could not, sir. No words could tell you what I feel. I wish this present hour would never end. Who knows with what fate the next may come charged? This is hypochondria, Jane. You have been overexcited and overfatigued. Do you, sir, feel calm and happy? Calm? No, but happy. To the heart's core. I looked up at him to read the signs of bliss in his face. It was ardent and flushed. Give me your confidence, Jane, he said. Relieve your mind of any weight that oppresses it by imparting it to me. What do you fear? That I shall not prove a good husband? Oh, it is the idea farthest from my thoughts. Are you apprehensive of the new sphere you are about to enter? Of the new life into which you are passing? No. You puzzle me, Jane. Your look and tone of sorrowful audacity perplex and pain me. 
I want an explanation. Then, sir, listen. You were from home last night? I was, I know that. And you hinted a while ago at something which had happened in my absence. Nothing probably of consequence, but in short it has disturbed you. Let me hear it. Mrs. Fairfax has said something, perhaps, or you have overheard the servants talk? Your sensitive self-respect has been wounded? No, sir. It struck twelve. I waited till the timepiece had concluded its silver chime, and the clock its hoarse, vibrating stroke, and then I proceeded. All day yesterday I was very busy, and very happy in my ceaseless bustle, for I am not, as you seem to think, troubled by any haunting fears about the new sphere, etc. I think it a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, because I love you. No, sir, don't caress me now. Let me talk undisturbed. Yes, yesterday I trusted well in Providence and believed that events were working together for your good and mine. It was a fine day, if you'll recollect. The calmness of the air and sky forbade apprehensions respecting your safety or comfort on your journey. I walked a little while on the pavement after tea, thinking of you and I beheld you in imagination so near me, I scarcely missed your actual presence. I thought of the life that lay before me. Your life, sir. An existence more expansive and stirring than my own, as much more so as the depths of the sea to which the brook runs are than the shallows of its own straight channel. I wondered why moralists call this world a dreary wilderness. For me... It blossomed like a rose. Just at sunset, the air turned cold, and the sky cloudy. I went in. Sophie called me upstairs to look at my wedding dress, which they had just brought, and under it in the box I found your present, the veil which, in your princely extravagance, you sent for from London. Resolved, I suppose, since I would not have jewels, to cheat me into accepting something so costly. I smiled as I unfolded it, and devised how I would tease you about your aristocratic tastes and your efforts to mask your plebeian bride in the attributes of a peeress. I thought how I would carry down to you the square of unembroidered blonde I had myself prepared as a covering for my low-born head— and ask if that was not good enough for a woman who could bring her husband neither fortune, beauty, nor connections. <laughs> I saw plainly how you would look, and heard your impetuous Republican answers, and your haughty disavowal of any necessity on your part to augment your wealth or elevate your standard by marrying either a purse or a coronet. How well you read me, you witch! interposed Mr. Rochester. But what did you find in the veil, besides its embroidery? Did you find poison or a dagger, that you look so mournful now? No, no, sir. Besides the delicacy and richness of the fabric, I found nothing save Fairfax Rochester's pride. And that did not scare me, because I am used to the sight of the demon. But, sir, as it grew dark— the wind rose. It blew yesterday evening, not as blows now, wild and high, but 
with a sullen, moaning sound, far more eerie. I wished you were at home. I came into this room, and the sight of the empty chair and fireless hearth chilled me. For some time after I went to bed, I could not sleep. A sense of anxious excitement distressed me. The gale still rising seemed to my ear to muffle a mournful undersound. Whether in the house or abroad, I could not at first tell. But it recurred, doubtful yet doleful, at every lull. At last I made out it must be some dog howling at a distance. I, I was glad when it ceased. On sleeping, I continued in dreams the idea of a dark and gusty night. I continued also the wish to be with you, and experienced a strange, regretful consciousness of some barrier dividing us. During all my first sleep, I was following the windings of an unknown road. Total obscurity environed me. Rain pelted me. I was burdened with the charge of a little child, a very small creature, too young and feeble to walk, and which shivered in my cold arms and wailed piteously in my ear. I thought, sir, that you were on the road a long way before me, and I strained every nerve to overtake you, and made effort on effort to utter your name, and entreat you to stop. But my movements were fettered, and my voice still died away, inarticulate, while you, I felt, withdrew farther and farther every moment. And these dreams weigh on your spirit now, Jane, when I am close to you? Little nervous subject— Forget visionary woe, and think only of real happiness. You say you love me, Janet. Yes, I will not forget that. And you cannot deny it. Those words did not die inarticulate on your lips. I heard them, clear and soft. A thought too solemn, perhaps, but sweet as music. I think it is a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you. Edward, because I love you. Do you love me, Jane? Repeat it. I do, sir. I do. With my whole heart. Well, he said, after some minute's silence, it is strange, but that sentence has penetrated my breast painfully. Why? I think because you said it with such an earnest, religious energy, and because your upward gaze at me now is the very sublime of faith, truth, and devotion. It is too much as if some spirit were near me. Look wicked, Jane, as you know well how to look. Coin one of your wild, shy, provoking smiles. Tell me you hate me, tease me, vex me, do anything but move me. I would rather be incensed than saddened. I will tease you and vex you to your heart's content when I have finished my tale. But hear me to the end. I thought, Jane, you had told me all. I thought I had found the source of your melancholy in a dream. I shook my head. What? Is there more? But I will not believe it to be anything important. I warn you of incredulity beforehand. Gone. The disquietude of his air, 
The somewhat apprehensive impatience of his manner surprised me, but I proceeded. I dreamt another dream, sir, that Thornfield Hall was a dreary ruin, the retreat of bats and owls. I thought that of all the stately front nothing remained but a shell-like wall, very high and very fragile-looking. I wandered on a moonlit night through the grass-grown enclosure within. Here I stumbled over a marble hearth, and there over a fallen fragment of cornice. Wrapped up in a shawl, I still carry the unknown little child— I might not lay it down anywhere, however tired were my arms, however much its weight impeded my progress, I must retain it. I heard the gallop of a horse at a distance on the road. I was sure it was you, and you were departing for many years, and for a distant country. I climbed the thin wall with frantic, perilous haste, eager to catch one glimpse of you from the top. The stones rolled from under my feet. The ivy branches I grasped gave way. The child clung round my neck in terror and almost strangled me. At last I gained the summit. I saw you like a speck on a white track, lessening every moment. The blast blew so strong I could not stand. I sat down on the narrow ledge. I hushed the scared infant in my lap. You turned an angle of the road. I bent forward to take a last look. The wall crumbled. I was shaken. The child rolled from my knee. I lost my balance, fell, and woke. Now, Jane, that is all. All the preface, sir. The tale is yet to come. On waking, a gleam dazzled my eye. I thought, oh, it is daylight, but I was mistaken. It was only candlelight. Sophie, I supposed, had come in. There was a light in the dressing table and the door of the closet where, before going to bed, I had hung my wedding dress and veil. It stood open. I heard a rustling there. I asked, Sophie, what are you doing? No one answered, but... A form emerged from the closet. It took the light, held it aloft, and surveyed the garments pendant from the portmanteau. Sophie! Sophie! I again cried, and still it was silent. I had risen up in bed. I bent forward. First, surprise. Then, bewilderment came over me. And then, my blood crept cold through my veins. Mr. Rochester, this was not Sophie. It was not Leah. It was not Mrs. Fairfax. It was not... No, I was sure of it, and am still. It was not even that strange woman, Grace Poole. It must have been one of them, interrupted my master. No, sir. I solemnly assure you to the contrary. The shape standing before me had never crossed my eyes within the precincts of Thornfield Hall before. The height, the contour, were new to me. Describe it, Jane. It seemed, sir, a woman, tall and large, 
with thick and dark hair hanging long down her back. I know not what dress she had on. It was white and straight, but whether gown, sheet, or shroud, I cannot tell. Did you see her face? Not at first, but presently she took my veil from its place. She held it up, gazed at it long, and then she threw it over her own head and turned to the mirror. At that moment I saw the reflection of the visage and features quite distinctly in the dark oblong glass. And how were they? Fearful, fearful and ghastly to me. Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. It was a discolored face. It was a savage face. I, I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful blackened inflation of the lineaments. Ghosts are usually pale, Jane. Yes, sir, but this was purple. The lips were swelled and dark. The brow furrowed. The black eyebrows widely raised over the bloodshot eyes. Shall I tell you of what it reminded me? You may. Of the foul German spectre, the vampire. Ah, what did it do? Sir, it removed my veil from its gaunt head, rent it in two parts, and flinging both on the floor, trembled on them. Afterwards? It drew aside the window curtain and looked out. Perhaps it saw dawn approaching, for taking the candle, it retreated to the door. Just at my bedside, the figure stopped. The fiery eyes glared upon me. She thrust up her candle close to my face and extinguished it under my eyes. I was aware her lurid visage flamed over mine, and I lost consciousness for the second time in my life, only the second time. I became insensible from terror. Who was with you when you revived? No one, sir, but the broad day. I rose, bathed my head and face in water, drank a long draught, felt that though enfeebled I was not ill, and determined that to none but you would I impart this vision. Now, sir, tell me who and what that woman was. The creature of an overstimulated brain, that is certain. I must be careful of you, my treasure. Nerves like yours were not meant for rough handling. Sir, depend on it. My nerves were not in fault. The thing was real. The transaction actually took place. And your previous dreams, were they real too? Is Thornfield Hall a ruin? Am I severed from you by insuperable obstacles? Am I leaving you without a tear, without a kiss, without a word? Not yet. Am I about to do it? Why, the day is already commenced, which is to bind us indissolubly. And when we are once united, there shall be no recurrence of these mental terrors. I guarantee that. Mental terrors, sir? I wish I could believe them to be only such. I wish it more now than ever, since even you cannot explain to me the mystery of that awful visitant. And since I cannot do it, Jane, it must have been unreal. But, sir, 
when I said so to myself on rising this morning, and when I looked round the room to gather courage and comfort from the cheerful aspect of each familiar object in full daylight. There, on the carpet, I saw what gave the distinct lie to my hypothesis, the veil, torn from top to bottom in two halves. I felt Mr. Rochester start and shudder. He hastily flung his arms round me. Thank God, he exclaimed, that if anything malignant did come near you last night, it was only the veil that was armed. Oh, to think what might have happened. He drew his breath short and strained me so close to him I could scarcely pat. After some minutes' silence, he continued cheerily. Now, Janet, I'll explain to you all about it. It was half dream, half reality. A woman did, I doubt not, enter your room, and that woman was, must have been, Grace Poole. You call her a strange being yourself. From all you know, you have reason so to call her. What did she do to me? What to Mason? In a state between sleeping and waking, you noticed her entrance and her actions. But feverish, almost delirious as you were, you ascribed to her a goblin appearance different from her own. The long, disheveled hair, the swelled black face, the exaggerated stature were figments of imagination. Results of nightmare. The spiteful tearing of the veil was real, and it is like her. I see you would ask why I keep such a woman in my house. When we have been married a year and a day, I will tell you. But not now. Are you satisfied, Jay? Do you accept my solution of the mystery? I reflected, and in truth, it appeared to me the only possible one. Satisfied I was not, but to please him I endeavored to appear so. Relieved, I certainly did feel, so I answered him with a contented smile. And now, as it was long past one, I prepared to leave him. Does not Sophie sleep with Adele in the nursery? He asked as I lit my candle. Yes, sir. And there is room enough in Adele's little bed for you. You must share it with her tonight, Jane. It is no wonder that the incident you have related should make you nervous and I would rather you did not sleep alone. Promise me to go to the nursery. I shall be very glad to do so, sir, and fasten the door securely on the inside. Wake Sophie when you go upstairs, under pretense of requesting her to rouse you in good time tomorrow, for you must be dressed and have finished breakfast before eight. And now, no more somber thoughts. Chase dull care away, Janet. Don't you hear to what soft whispers the wind has fallen? And there is no more beating of rain against the window panes. Look here. He lifted up the curtain. It is a lovely night. It was. Half heaven was pure and stainless. The clouds, now trooping before the wind, which had shifted to the west, were filing off eastward in long silver columns. The moon shone peacefully. Well, said Mr. Rochester, gazing inquiringly into my eyes, how is my Janet now? The night is serene, sir. 
and so am I. And you will not dream of separation and sorrow tonight, but of happy love and blissful union. This prediction was but half fulfilled. I did not indeed dream of sorrow, but as little did I dream of joy, for I never slept at all. With a little Adele in my arms, I watched the slumber of childhood. So tranquil, so passionless, so innocent, and waited for the coming day. All my life was awake and astir in my frame, and as soon as the sun rose, I rose too. I remember Adele clung to me as I left her. I remember I kissed her as I loosened her little hands from my neck, and I cried over her with strange emotion and quitted her because I feared my sobs would break her still sound repose. She seemed the emblem of my past life, and here I was now to array myself to meet the dread but adored type of my unknown future day. Chapter 26 Sophie came at seven to dress me. She was very long indeed in accomplishing her task, so long that Mr. Rochester, grown, I suppose, impatient of my delay, sent up to ask why I did not come. She was just fastening my veil, the plain square of blonde after all, to my hair with a brooch. I hurried from under her hands as soon as I could. Stop, she cried in French. Look at yourself in the mirror. You have not taken one peep. So I turned at the door. I saw a robed and veiled figure, so unlike my usual self that it seemed almost the image of a stranger. Jane, called a voice, and I hastened down. I was received at the foot of the stairs by Mr. Rochester. Lingerer, he said. My brain is on fire with impatience, and you tarry so long. He took me into the dining room, surveyed me keenly all over, pronounced me fair as a lily, and not only the pride of my life, but the desire of my eyes. And then, telling me he would give me but ten minutes to eat some breakfast, he rang the bell. One of his lately hired servants, a footman, answered it. Is John getting the carriage ready? Yes, sir. Is the luggage brought down? They are bringing it down, sir. Go you to the church. See if Mr. Wood, the clergyman, and the clerk are there. Return and tell me. The church, as the reader knows, was but just beyond the gates. The footman soon returned. Mr. Wood is in the vestry, sir, putting on his surplice. And the carriage? The horses are harnessing. We shall not want it to go to church, but it must be ready the moment we return. All the boxes and luggage arranged and strapped on, and the coachman in his seat. Yes, sir. Jane, are you ready? I rose. There were no groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no relatives to wait for or marshal, none but Mr. Rochester and I. Mrs. Fairfax stood in the hall as we passed. I would fain have spoken to her, but my hand was held by a grasp of iron. I was hurried along by a stride I could hardly follow, and to look at Mr. Rochester's face was to feel that not a second of delay would be tolerated for any purpose. 
I wonder what other bridegroom ever looked as he did, so bent up to a purpose, so grimly resolute, or who, under such steadfast brows, ever revealed such flaming and flashing eyes. I know not whether the day was fair or foul. In descending the drive, I gaze neither on sky nor earth. My heart was with my eyes, and both seemed migrated into Mr. Rochester's frame. I wanted to see the invisible thing on which, as we went along, he appeared to fasten a glance fierce and fell. I wanted to feel the thoughts whose force he seemed breasting and resisting. At the churchyard wicket he stopped. He discovered I was quite out of breath. Am I cruel in my love? He said. Delay an instant. Lean on me, Jane. And now I can recall the picture of the grey old house of God rising calm before me of a rook wheeling round the steeple, of a ruddy morning sky beyond. I remember something, too, of the green grave mounds, and I have not forgotten either two figures of strangers straying amongst the low hillocks and reading the mementos graven on the few mossy headstones. I noticed them because as they saw us, they passed round to the back of the church, and I doubted not they were going to enter by the side-aisle door and witness the ceremony. By Mr. Rochester they were not observed. He was earnestly looking at my face, from which the blood had, I dare say, momentarily fled, for I felt my forehead dewy and my cheeks and lips cold. When I rallied, which I soon did, he walked gently with me up the path to the porch." we entered the quiet and humble temple. The priest waited in his white surplice at the lowly altar, the clerk beside him. All was still. Two shadows only moved in a remote corner. My conjecture had been correct. The strangers had slipped in before us, and they now stood by the vault of the Rochesters, their backs towards us, viewing through the rails the old time-stained marble tomb where a kneeling angel guarded the remains of Damer de Rochester, slain at Marston Moor in the time of the civil wars, and of Elizabeth, his wife. Our place was taken at the communion rails. Hearing a cautious step behind me, I glanced over my shoulder. One of the strangers, a gentleman evidently, was advancing up the chancel. The service began. The explanation of the intent of matrimony was gone through, and then the clergyman came a step further forward, and, bending slightly towards Mr. Rochester, went on. I require and charge you both, as you will answer at the dreadful day of judgment, when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment why ye may not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. For be ye well assured that so many as are coupled together otherwise than God's word doth allow are not joined together by God, nor is their matrimony lawful. He paused, as the custom is. When is the pause after that sentence ever broken by reply? Not perhaps once in a hundred years and the clergyman, 
who had not lifted his eyes from his book, and had held his breath but for a moment, was proceeding. His hand was already stretched towards Mr. Rochester, as his lips unclosed to ask, "'Wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife?' when a distinct and near voice said, "'The marriage cannot go on. I declare the existence of an impediment.' The clergyman looked up at the speaker and stood mute. The clerk did the same. Mr. Rochester moved slightly, as if an earthquake had rolled under his feet. Taking a firmer footing and not turning his head or eyes, he said, Proceed. Profound silence fell when he had uttered that word, with deep but low intonation. Presently Mr. Wood said, I cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted and evidence of its truth or falsehood. The ceremony is quite broken off, subjoined the voice behind us. I am in a condition to prove my allegation. An insuperable impediment to this marriage exists. Mr. Rochester heard, but he did not. He stood stubborn and rigid, making no movement but to possess himself of my hand. What a hot and strong grasp he had, and how like quarried marble was his pale, firm, massive front at this moment. How his eye shone, still watchful and yet wild beneath. Mr. Wood seemed at a loss. What is the nature of the impediment? he asked. Perhaps it may be got over, explained away. Hardly, was the answer. I have called it insuperable, and I speak advisedly. The speaker came forward and leaned on the rails. He continued, uttering each word distinctly, calmly, steadily, but not loudly. It simply consists in the existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wife now living. My nerves vibrated to these low-spoken words as they had never vibrated to thunder. My blood felt their subtle violence as it had never felt frost or fire, but I was collected and in no danger of swooning. I looked at Mr. Rochester. I made him look at me. His whole face was colorless rock. His eye was both spark and flint. He disavowed nothing. He seemed as if he would defy all things. Without speaking, without smiling, without seeming to recognize in me a human being, he only twined my waist with his arm and riveted me to his side. Who are you? he asked of the intruder. My name is Briggs, a solicitor from London. And you would thrust on me a wife. I would remind you of your lady's existence, sir, which the law recognizes if you do not. Favor me with an account of her, with her name, her parentage, her place of abode. Certainly. Mr. Briggs calmly took a paper from his pocket and read out in a sort of official, nasal voice. I affirm and can prove that on the 20th of October... A date fifteen years back, Edward Fairfax Rochester of Thornfield Hall was married to my sister, Bertha Antoinetta Mason, daughter of Jonas Mason, 
merchant, and of Antoinetta, his wife, a Creole, at Spanish Town, Jamaica. The record of the marriage will be found in the registry of that church, a copy of which is now in my possession. Signed, Richard Mason. That, if a genuine document, may prove I have been married, but it does not prove that the woman mentioned therein as my wife is still living. She was living three months ago, returned the lawyer. How do you know? I have a witness to the fact, whose testimony even you, sir, will scarcely controvert. Produce him, or go to hell. I will produce him first. He is on the spot. Mr. Mason, have the goodness to step forward. Mr. Rochester, on hearing the name, set his teeth. He experienced, too, a sort of strong, convulsive quiver. Near to him as I was, I felt the spasmodic movement of fury or despair run through his frame. The second stranger, who had hitherto lingered in the background, now drew near. A pale face looked over the solicitor's shoulder. Yes, it was Mason himself. Mr. Rochester turned and glared at him. His eye, as I have often said, was a black eye. It had now a tawny, nay, a bloody light in its gloom, and his face flushed. Olive cheek and hueless forehead received a glow as from spreading ascending heart fire, and he stirred, lifted his strong arm. He could have struck Mason, dashed him on the church floor, shocked by ruthless blow, the breath from his body. But Mason shrank away and cried faintly, Good God! Contempt fell cool on Mr. Rochester. His passion died, as if a blight had shriveled it up. He only asked, What have you to say? An inaudible reply escaped Mason's white lips. The devil is in it if you cannot answer distinctly. I again demand, what have you to say? Sir, sir, interrupted the clergyman, do not forget you are in a sacred place. Then addressing Mason, he inquired gently, Are you aware, sir, whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living? Courage, urged the lawyer. Speak out. She is now living at Thornfield Hall, said Mason, in more articulate tones. I saw her there last April. I am her brother. At Thornfield Hall, ejaculated the clergyman. Impossible. I am an old resident in this neighborhood, sir, and I never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at Thornfield Hall. I saw a grim smile contort Mr. Rochester's lips, and he muttered, No, by God, I took care that none should hear of it, or of her under that name. He mused. For ten minutes he held counsel with himself. He formed his resolve and announced it. Enough. All shall bolt out at once, like the bullet from the barrel. Wood, close your book and take off your surplice. John Green, to the clerk, leave the church. There will be no wedding today. The man obeyed. Mr. Rochester continued, heartily and recklessly. Bigamy is an ugly word. I meant, however, to be a bigamist. 
but fate has outmaneuvered me. Or providence has checked me, perhaps the last. I am little better than a devil at this moment, and as my pastor there would tell me, deserve no doubt the sternest judgments of God, even to the quenchless fire and deathless war. Gentlemen, my plan is broken up. What this lawyer and his client say is true. I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married lives. You say you never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at the house up yonder, Wood? But I dare say you have many a time inclined your ear to gossip about the mysterious lunatic kept there under watch and ward. Some have whispered to you that she is my bastard half-sister, some my cast-off mistress. I now inform you that she is my wife, whom I married fifteen years ago, Bertha Mason by name. "'Sister of this resolute personage, who is now, with his quivering limbs and white cheeks, "'showing you what a stout heart men may bear. "'Cheer up, Dick. Never fear me. "'I'd almost as soon strike a woman as you. "'Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, "'idiots and maniacs through three generations.' Her mother, the Creole, was both a madwoman and a drunkard, as I found out after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before. Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes— Oh, my experience has been heavenly, if you only knew it. But I owe you no further explanation. Briggs, Wood, Mason, I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. You shall see what sort of a being I was cheated into espousing, and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek sympathy with something at least human. This girl... He continued, looking at me, knew no more than you would of the disgusting secret. She thought all was fair and legal, and never dreamt she was going to be entrapped into a feigned union with a defrauded wretch already bound to a bad, mad, and imbruted partner. Come, all of you, follow. Still holding me fast, he left the church. The three gentlemen came after at the front door of the hall, we found the carriage. Take it back to the coach house, John, said Mr. Rochester coolly. It will not be wanted today. At our entrance, Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, Sophie, Leah advanced to meet and greet us. To the right about, every soul, cried the master. Away with your congratulations. Who wants them? Not I. They are fifteen years too late. He passed on and ascended the stairs, still holding my hand and still beckoning the gentlemen to follow him, which they did. We mounted the first staircase, passed up the gallery, proceeded to the third story. The low black door opened by Mr. Rochester's master key admitted us to the tapestried room with its great bed in its pictorial cabinet. You know this place, Mason, said our guide. 
She bit and stabbed you here. He lifted the hangings from the wall, uncovering the second door. This, too, he opened. In a room without a window, there burnt a fire, guarded by a high and strong fender, and a lamp suspended from the ceiling by a chain. Grace Poole bent over the fire, apparently cooking something in a saucepan. In the deep shade at the farther end of the room, a figure ran backwards and forwards. What it was, whether beast or human being, one could not at first sight tell. It groveled, seemingly on all fours. It snatched and growled like some strange wild animal, but it was covered with clothing, and a quantity of dark, grizzled hair, wild as a mane, hid its head and face. "'Good morrow, Mrs. Poole,' said Mr. Rochester. "'How are you, and how is your charge today?' "'We're tolerable, sir, I thank you,' replied Grace." "'lifting the boiling mess carefully onto the hob. "'Rather snappish, but not rageous. "'A fierce cry seemed to give the lie to her favourable report. "'The clothed hyena rose up and stood tall on its hind feet. "'Ah, sir, she sees you,' exclaimed Grace. "'You'd better not stay.' "'Only a few moments, Grace. "'You must allow me a few moments. "'Take care, then, sir. "'For God's sake, take care, take care.' The maniac bellowed. She parted her shaggy locks from her visage and gazed wildly at her visitors. I recognized well that purple face, those bloated features. Mrs. Poole advanced. Keep out of the way, said Mr. Rochester, thrusting her aside. She has no knife now, I suppose, and I'm on my guard. One never knows what she has, sir. She's so cunning. It is not in mortal discretion to fathom her craft. We had better leave her, whispered Mason. Go to the devil, was his brother-in-law's recommendation. Where? cried Grace. The three gentlemen retreated simultaneously. Mr. Rochester flung me behind him. The lunatic sprang and grappled his throat viciously and laid her teeth to his cheek. They struggled. She was a big woman, in stature almost equaling her husband, and corpulent besides. She showed virile force in the contest. More than once she almost throttled him, athletic as he was. He could have settled her with a well-planted blow, but he would not strike. He would only wrestle. At last he mastered her arms. Grace Poole gave him a cord and he pinioned them behind her. With more rope, which was at hand, he bound her to a chair. The operation was performed amidst the fiercest yells and the most convulsive plunges. Mr. Rochester then turned to the spectators. He looked at them with a smile, both acrid and desolate. That is my wife, said he. Such is the sole conjugal embrace. I am ever to know. Such are the endearments which are to solace my leisure hours, and this is what I wished to have. Laying his hand on my shoulder, this young girl, who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell, 
looking collectedly at the gambols of a demon. I wanted her just as a change after that fierce ragu. Wood and Briggs, look at the difference. Compare these clear eyes with the red balls yonder, this face with that mask, this form with that bulk. Then judge me, priest of the gospel and man of the law. And remember, with what judgment ye judge, so also shall you be judged. Off with you now. I must shut up by prize. We all withdrew. Mr. Rochester stayed a moment behind us to give some further order to Grace Poole. The solicitor addressed me as he had descended the stair. You, madam, said he, are cleared from all blame. Your uncle will be glad to hear it, if indeed he should be still living, when Mr. Mason returns to Madeira. My uncle? What of him? Do you know him? Mr. Mason does. Mr. Eyre has been the correspondent of his house for some years. When your uncle received your letter intimating the contemplated union between yourself and Mr. Rochester, Mr. Mason, who was staying at Madeira to recruit his health on his way back to Jamaica, happened to be with him. Mr. Eyre mentioned the intelligence, for he knew that my client here was acquainted with a gentleman of the name of Rochester. Mr. Mason, astonished and distressed, as you may suppose, revealed the real state of matters. Your uncle, I am sorry to say, is now on a sickbed, from which, considering the nature of his decease, decline, and the stage it has reached, it is unlikely he will ever rise. He could not then hasten to England himself, to extricate you from the snare into which you had fallen. But he implored Mr. Mason to lose no time in taking steps to prevent the false marriage. He referred him to me for assistance. I used all dispatch, and am thankful I was not too late, as you doubtless must be also. Were I not morally certain that your uncle will be dead ere you reach Madeira, I would advise you to accompany Mr. Mason back. But as it is, I think you had better remain in England till you can hear further, either from or of Mr. Eyre. Now let me see, have we anything else to stay for? He inquired of Mr. Mason. No, no, let us be gone, was the anxious reply and without waiting to take leave of Mr. Rochester, they made their exit at the hall door. The clergyman stayed to exchange a few sentences, either of admonition or reproof, with his haughty parishioner, but this duty done, he too departed. I heard him go as I stood at the half-open door of my own room, to which I had now withdrawn. The house cleared. I shut myself in, fastened the bolt that none might intrude, and proceeded not to weep, not to mourn. I was yet too calm for that, but mechanically to take off the wedding dress and replace it by the stuffed gown I had worn yesterday as I had thought for the last time. I then sat down. I felt weak and tired. I leaned my arms on a table, and my head dropped on them. And now I thought, till now, I had only heard, seen, moved, followed, up and down where I was led or dragged, watched event rush on event, disclosure open upon disclosure. 
But now, I thought. The morning had been a quiet morning enough, all except the brief scene with the lunatic. The transaction in the church had not been noisy. There was no explosion of passion, no loud altercation, no dispute, no defiance or challenge, no tears, no sobs. A few words had been spoken. A calmly pronounced objection to the marriage made. Some stern, short questions put by Mr. Rochester. Answers, explanations given, evidence adduced, an open admission of the truth had been uttered by my master. Then the living proof had been seen. The intruders were gone, and all was over. I was in my own room, as usual, just myself, without obvious change. Nothing had smitten me, or scathed me, or maimed me. And yet, where was the Jane Eyre of yesterday? Where was her life? Where were her prospects? Jane Eyre, who had been an ardent, expectant woman, almost a bride, was a cold, solitary girl again. Her life was pale. Her prospects were desolate. A Christmas frost had come at midsummer. A white December storm had whirled over June. Ice glazed the ripe apples, drifts crushed the blowing roses. On hayfield and cornfield lay a frozen shroud. Lanes which last night blushed full of flowers, today were pathless with untrodden snow. And the woods, which twelve hours since waved leafy and fragrant as groves between the tropics, now spread waste wild and white as pine forests in wintry Norway. My hopes were all dead, struck with a subtle doom, such as in one night fell on all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I looked on my cherished wishes, yesterday so blooming and glowing. They lay, stark, chill, livid corpses that could never revive. I looked at my love, that feeling which was my master's, which he had created. It shivered in my heart, like a suffering child in a cold cradle. Sickness and anguish had seized it. It could not seek Mr. Rochester's arms. It could not derive warmth from his breast. Oh, never more could it turn to him. For faith was blighted, confidence destroyed. Mr. Rochester was not to me what he had been, for he is not what I had thought him. I would not describe vice to him. I would not say he had betrayed me, but the attribute of stainless truth was gone from his idea, and from his presence I must go. That I perceived well. When, how, whither, I could not yet discern, but he himself, I doubted not, would hurry me from Thornfield. Real affection, it seemed, he could not have for me. It had been only fitful passion. That was balked. He would want me no more. I should fear even to cross his path now. My view would be hateful to him. 
Oh, how blind had been my eyes, how weak my conduct. My eyes were covered and closed. Eddy darkness seemed to swim round me, and reflection came in as black and confused a flow. Self-abandoned, relaxed and effortless, I seemed to have laid me down in the dried-up bed of a great river. I heard a flood loosened in remote mountains and felt the torrent come. To rise, I had no will. To flee, I had no strength. I lay faint, longing to be dead. One idea only still throbbed, lifelike within me, a remembrance of God. It begot an unuttered prayer. These words went wandering up and down in my rayless mind as something that should be whispered, but no energy was found to express them. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. It was near, and as I had lifted no petition to heaven to avert it, as I had neither joined my hands, nor bent my knees, nor moved my lips, it came. In full, heavy swing, the torrent poured over me. The whole consciousness of my life lorn, my love lost, my hope quenched, my faith death-struck, swayed full and mighty above me in one sullen mass. That bitter hour cannot be described. In truth, the waters came into my soul. I sank in deep mire. I felt no standing. I came into deep waters. The floods overflowed me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock and Paul Thomas. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. You can help us by recommending this podcast to your friends and rating it in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. We invite you to enjoy a variety of other podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.